0: Good morning. My name is Graham Haygood. I'm one of uh, your elder team here at The Ridge. Uh, Hopefully you you know me. If you don't know me well, you may know my wife Suzanne or my sons Jake or Gray. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure to serve on the elder team here at The Ridge. Uh, I've learned so much from uh, the guys uh, on the team over the years and our staff and it's just a real pleasure. I John said, I'm so glad he brought up about recognizing the worship team and the giftedness that they have. And, uh, I often wish that I could share some of the late night meetings and maybe even some of the comedic stylings of Isabel at those late night meetings. And, uh, cause you don't get to see it, but I do, but, uh, just to see the heart of those guys. And, uh, man, I look up to them so much. Um, it's just a pleasure. And I'm, I'm really excited about sharing with you this morning. Um, some of you who know me know that, uh, Oh, I'm, I'm told to adjust my mic here. Is it too far? Can you hear me better? Sorry about that. Is that loud enough? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, some of you know me know that I'm not, I'm not the Psalms guy. I'm the apologetics guy. I like logic. I like precepts. I like to even occasionally uh, get taught some Greek words and parse them out. Uh, but the emotion and the feel, touchy-feely thing... Uh, that's, that can be tough for me. I, I, I've worked on, uh, I've actually listened to audio tapes of increasing my emotional IQ. Very, very limited success uh, there. My wife can attest to that. Uh, but I'm excited about this psalm this morning. And I really think over the last couple of weeks, if you've been reading along with us um, on the website, uh, we have daily readings on the website uh, and different people write devotionals. And we've been going through the psalms We're, we've made it through 108 psalms so far uh, to, Tomorrow, read Jerry Webb's. It's going to be good. His are always great. Psalm one hundred nine. I encourage you to go to the website and read it. Uh, but I feel like God's been working on me, um, and this particular psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm eighty one that Birds just read, uh, it's really been uh, something. When I wrote a devotional uh, a few weeks ago on it, it, it's just been stirring in me, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to share it with you this morning. And I just uh, I just pray that you'll receive it. Uh, I, I mentioned in the nine o'clock class that. I think when Jerry's on vacation, uh, David's one thing. I mean, David's a gifted preacher. Uh, we have other gifted speakers and preachers. But when the elders come through, the elder team guys, just the regular dudes like me come through, it's kind of like eggnog, right? On Christmas, it's great because it's a novelty. But if it was really that good, you drink it year-round, right? So, And nobody does. So think of, think of this sermon like the eggnog sermon, all right? So... With respect to Psalm 81 today, I want to look at three things. One is, who was Asaph? Uh, We'll look at that in just a minute. Asaph is credited as the writer of this psalm. Then we're going to look at the psalm as a whole, all all 16 verses that burns red. And then we're going to circle back to a specific verse um, and a specific challenge, a direct quote from God, as a matter of fact. Um, We're going to park on that for just a second because it's really been stirring my heart and I'm excited about sharing it with you. So first off, who was Asaph? Um, I wrote in a little sermon blurb this morning. To me, he's the uh, he's the most interesting man of the world, uh, most interesting man in the world of his day, right? He's a Renaissance man. Uh, it's not somebody we talk about a lot. At least when I growing up in church, I haven't heard a lot about Asaph. But he wrote twelve of the Psalms, uh, and. The, the Old Testament gives us some clues as to who he was. We're going to walk through those real quick, and some of them will be up here. I encourage you to just keep your Bible open to Psalm 81. Um, these other scriptures we'll, we'll put up on the, the board, or I'll share them with you. Um, but I, I, I want to just kind of work our way through here. Uh, Asaph, he was appointed by David to be a worship leader to minister before the Ark of the Lord. Now, that's the Ark of the Covenant. 1 Chronicles 6:4 4 is 1 uh, Chronicles chapter 16, verse 4. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph, the chief, and second to him, Zechariah. There's some great names here. Then Jael, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obadidim, Jael, all with musical instruments, harps, lyres, and also Asaph, who played the loud-sounding cymbals. And Benaiah and Jehezel, the priests, blew trumpets continually before the ark of the covenant of God, And on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. So, this is when David brought the ark back, right, and they they put it in the tent of meeting. This is basically the first kind of what we would consider praise and worship service. This is the first time that God, through David, appointed a specific person gifted um, to lead in worship. Uh, And I think this is interesting because you guys that know the Old Testament well, you know all about the Ark of the Covenant and a guy named Uzzah. Does Uzzah ring a bell? Uzzah, anyone? I just know it from Indiana Jones, so I'll be honest with you. I had to look it up. Remember when they were moving the Ark of the Covenant and the ox stumbled and it almost fell down and Uzzah was like, reached out to touch it? No more Uzzah. That was, he was done. So the Ark of the Covenant is a, big, is a scary thing because it represent, represents the holiness of God, right? So when David says, hey, we're going to pick some, uh, one of the Levites, one of the priests who's gifted with music, to go in there and minister in front of the Ark of the Covenant, right? I, mean, I think if we were sitting there, I'd be like, Hey, Jake, why don't you go in the Ark of the Covenant? I'll wait out here. <laughs> I don't want to be near that thing. That's scary. So uh, Asaph was that guy. He went in and ministered before the Ark. So in addition to being a songwriter and a musician, he was also a prophet in Second Chronicles 29.30. It says, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshiped. So when it says Asaph was a seer, that's another word for prophet. And we'll, we'll see that in Psalm 81 today. Um, Asaph spoke for God. Pro- that's what prophets did, right? God gave them a word, they spoke it to the people. Um a matter of fact, today we're going to look at a direct quote uh, from God. So Asaph wrote 12 of the Psalms, like I mentioned. He wrote 73 through 83 and Psalm 50. He was called the poet historian of Israel because his Psalms talked a lot about the history of Israel, right? So, so far, what we know about Asaph, he was a gifted musician. He was a songwriter, a poet. He played probably multiple instruments, right? Including the lyre or lyre and the harp and the timbrel, right? That's the tambourine. I we'll have the tambourine here. That was really loud. So, uh, what else was he? Well, in addition to that, he was probably an expert with livestock, right? Because what did the priests do? What did the Levites do? And they, had, they dealt with a lot of livestock, right, and a lot of sacrifices, right? So, uh, that's what we know about him so far. Let's go on. Asaph and his son served faithfully under David in those years, he served, they served so faithfully, as a matter of fact, that Solomon appointed them to serve at the dedication of the temple. We see in 2 Chronicles 5, 11 through 14 When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions. And all the Levitical singers, and Asaph, and Heman and Jedithun, and their sons and kinsmen, kinsmen, clothed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. That's... That's quite a scene there, 120 priests blowing trumpets with all the other instruments. This is the dedication of the temple. This is the, this is the temple, one of the greatest structures ever built at the time by Solomon, right, to honor God. In unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise, to glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and they praised the Lord, saying, "'He indeed is good, for His lovingkindness is everlasting.'" Then the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, because the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. That's quite a scene, right? So Asaph was there. Asaph was there when the ark came back. Asaph was there when the temple was built, when it was dedicated. And he was the man. He was leading it all. He was the John Meyer of his day. Asaph faithfully ministered and taught with his sons, who in turn did the same for their sons. Right? So we know he's a worship director. We know he's a leader. Now we know he's a teacher, right? We also know he's a great father. And here's how. About 100 years after King Jehoshaphat prayed for protection against invading armies and received a prophetic word from Jehoshaphat. This is 100 years later, after the dedication of the temple. Asaph is dead and gone. But uh, Jehazahil, one of his sons, is the one who gave the prophetic word, right? So now we have his descendants. 140 years after that. When Hezekiah was king, the sons of Asaph were among the Levites who cleansed and consecrated the temple so that the worship of God could be restored, right? Fast forward another 80 years, and the book of the law was found by King Josiah. He reinstituted the Passover. The singers were the descendants, again, of Asaph. 400 years after the dedication of the temple, when the priests blew the trumpets and the cloud filled the temple, 400 years later, the Israelites returned to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon. Ezra, in the book of Ezra, chapter 2, records that there numbered among the exiles 148 musicians, and they were called the sons or descendants of Asaph. So what a legacy. What a guy. He he really was a Renaissance man. Um, When the foundation of the new temple was laid, it was a man named Madaniah, a descendant of Asaph, who led the worship that day. This is the second temple hundreds of years later. So in a sense... When we read in Galatians 3.29, you guys are familiar with that verse. We're all Abraham's offspring as Christ followers. We're all Abraham's offspring. We're heirs according to promise, right? All the team up here, John and all the guys up here, they're spiritual descendants of Asaph, the first worship director. So, maybe you already knew that about Asaph. I didn't. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, Let's see what he has to say today in Psalm 81. So, look back in Psalm 81. So there's 16 verses, and it kind of breaks down kind of nice and neat for someone who likes logic like I do. The first seven verses, and then verses 8 through 16, and in, those, in, in Psalm 81, we have the two primary reasons why we're here, why we gather for corporate worship, why we assemble. One is, in the first half, to give glory to God, to praise Him for who He is, to behold His majesty, and the second is to receive instruction from God. So you see both of that here in this song. And we have to remember that this is a song, Right? So you've guys seen it. If you, if you take one of your songs, there's some funny commercials out there right now. The one about the buy drink where they do buy, buy, buy. Have y'all seen that one? I think it's pretty funny. Right, if, you take a, if you take song lyrics and you just kind of write them down and read them, they kind of sound silly a lot of times, don't they? To me, they do anyway, right? There's a lot of repetition, a lot of weird things, right? When we read the Psalms, we have to remember that we're reading song lyrics. We're reading poetry, but it's really all this was written to be sung, right? And it's believed, about, by the way, that Asaph wrote a lot of the music, of, even of David's psalms, um, the actual scores. Um, but it's important to remember that. It's making an emotional connection, right? It's not making always... It's not a sermon. A psalm isn't a sermon. A psalm isn't a logical precept teaching. It's, it's connecting on an emotional level, on a visceral level. It's revealing God's character. It's, yes, we can learn from it. Yes, it can edify us. But we have to remember what we're looking at. It has to be read... As a song, which is why, like I said, sometimes I've historically struggled with it. You know, you have to you have to be you have to be uh, emotional, have a high emotional IQ to get the most out of the song. So let's look at verse one and two. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob, the sweet-sounding lyre with the heart. So right off the bat, Asaph basically says, crank it up. Right? This isn't just worship. This is shouting. This is singing, and when the, he mentions the timbrel, he's talking about the tambourine, right? And what do we know that usually goes with the tambourine? Does anyone know? You're not, you may not get it, right? Because our church used to be Baptist. You may not know this. <laughs> dancing. Thank you, Brad Horine. It goes da- dancing, <laughs> right? It's dancing. It absolutely is. In Psalm 149.3, Psalm 149.3 says, Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel, the tambourine. Psalm 150 verse 4, praise him with the timbrel and dancing, praise him with stringed instruments and the pipe, right? And remember in 2 Samuel, back to the Ark of the Covenant, right? David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and he was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Now, you remember that story about David when he was dancing? You remember someone had a big problem with it? Yeah, he, he, he had the tambourine and he was up there dancing. It was his wife. His wife had a big problem with it. She was looking out the window, and she, what did she say? That's no way for a king to act. He's acting. He's out of control, man. He's he's nuts. So I thought I would do a little dance. No, I'm not going to do that. No. So I just, man, that is awesome. I just, her, it, I don't know whose face is red, or yours or Isabel's. So this is a different kind of worship that he's calling for, right? This is a crank it up. This is a not self-inhibited kind of worship. It's visceral and physical. C.S. Lewis wrote on his reflections on the Psalms, The most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. I'm not saying that this is so pure, profound a thing as the love of God reached by the greatest Christian saints, but I'm not comparing it to that. What I'm comparing it with is the merely dutiful church going and laborious saying our prayers to which most of us are often reduced. Against that... This type of worship stands out as something astonishingly robust, virile, and spontaneous. Something we may regard with an innocent envy and may hope to be infected by, as we read. And I confess to you, I, I need to be infected. It's, it's, corporate worship can be tough for me. Uh, I don't do well with repetition, right? Uh, I don't, some, of you, some of you guys may not know anything what I'm talking about, but if a few of you do... A few, of you, a few of you might. It'd be like, I'm just waiting to get to the sermon. I'm just waiting to get to the teaching part, right? Um, God commanded this. God commanded it. So let's keep reading and see if we can get infected here. Verse 3, Psalm 81, verse 3. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day, for it's a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He established it for a testimony in Joseph when he went throughout the land of Egypt. I heard a language that I did not know. So the feast day most likely referenced to here is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Uh, you, you may remember that one. You guys that are Old Testament guys may remember. That's the one where they're celebrating the deliverance, right, out of captivity in Egypt. And when they didn't have a home to live in, right, they were, on, they were on, in the wilderness on the run. So this festival happened on the seventh month. They would build little tents or shelters and live in them for a period of days to celebrate and to remember how God provided when they couldn't live in their homes. I, I mentioned at 9 o'clock, I thought it was like a Boy Scout thing, like they put the tent in the backyard just to get good at camping. You know, it's like, kind of like a stay outside kind of festival. And it happened right after the harvest. So this is the biggest, most joyous, most boisterous, most thankful uh, festival uh, of, of, all, of all the festivals in the Old Testament. Um, it was regarded as the most joyous of all the feasts. And they weren't to do any work. They were just to celebrate. And that's why you have this boisterous type of singing and dancing and, and playing of all the instruments and even shouting. Uh, it's just a, quite, quite an uh, admonition of God. And what's interesting is, if you look at verse 4, it's an ordinance from God. God commands us to worship this way, to praise Him this way. Right? It's a commandment. It's, it's an imperative, a directive from God. I struggle with that. I think it's, you know, we talked about when someone's really upset or panicked or nervous, what, what, the first thing I always say is calm down. That never works. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear. when so, If someone's worked up, the last thing you want someone to tell you is to calm down. But yet I say it anyway. I, I don't know why. Uh, it's the same thing is here. God's commanding us to be emotional, to be visceral, to be uh, completely engaged, obviously mentally, but physically and emotionally. And... and He's, he's really commanding a feeling, and that's hard. I mean, how can you command someone to feel a certain way? I think that, I'll be honest, to me, on the surface, that seems unfair of God to do that. I mean, I'm not feeling it. You know, God, right now, I'm not feeling that. You're, you're commanding me to worship this way, but I'm not, I'm not feeling that way. You can't command. You could command me to act a certain way, or you can command me to, to pray or to... to work on something in my life or to you can command me to share your your good news with someone but you can't command me to feel a certain way right but that's exactly what God is doing here that's exactly what we're asked to do here Um, and I think we'll get some clues as to as to the answer to that here as we move along so in verse uh, let's see in verse 5 we see Joseph going throughout the land of Egypt, and it's probably a reference to Joseph um, going around Egypt to store up food. Remember when he uh, got the prophecy about the famine, and there was going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, um, and he talks about Joseph going around. Um, in verse six, Psalm eighty-one, I res- relieved his shoulder of the burden; his hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble, and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Marimba. So notice that in verse 6, the parentheses start, right? Verse 6 all the way down to verse 12, you're going to see parentheses. This is a direct quote from God. Remember we talked about Asaph was a prophet. This This is a direct word from God given to us as poetry. Pretty amazing. So, God reminds Israel of how he delivered them time and time again here. The baskets carried the heavy loads of bricks the Israelites were forced to bear in Egypt. The hiding place of thunder in verse 7. All right, well, that's a really, by the way, that's a good song lyric. I, I know John's an awesome songwriter. Man, the hiding place of thunder is, is strong. That's good. I, I work with, I, I'm very fortunate, although I have, I liked what Matt said last week about he was, wanted to be a worship, a worship leader, but he had no... Ability to sing or play any instrument, that was the only thing holding them back, just those two things. And it's like, yeah, I'm the same way, I'm even worse. But I do get to work with musicians and songwriters in my job, and it's awesome to see how they work. And man, sometimes there's just a turn of phrase, they'll come up with something, and it's something I never would have thought of because I would have just said what you're going to say. You never do that in poetry, right? That's prose. In poetry, you say something totally different, and what you wanted to say is inside of it in some kind of magical way, right? And that's what he says here. The cloud of thunder, or the, uh, sorry, he got to rescue you in the hiding place of thunder. All right, where does thunder hide? It's a little, right? If I had the little fourth graders in here or the four-year-olds in here, I'm sorry. they in a cloud, right? Right, so what's he talking about here? He's talking about the cloud. Exodus four, 14 Verses 19 through 20, remember the speaking of panic, the Israelites were panicked, right? They'd gotten out, they were on the way, and all of a sudden, Pharaoh changed his mind. He decided to come after them, right? You guys that are, again, Bible students, you know this from the Old Testament. I know it from the movie with Charleston Heston and Yul Brenner. right? Yul Brenner changed his mind, and he's coming after them. And they panicked, and they said, it'd been better if you left us as slaves there than to be buried in the wilderness, right? What happened? In verse 19, The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness. Yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. So God saved them in this huge, miraculous way with the cloud, right? The hiding place of thunder. What about the waters of Meribah in the next verse? This was another occasion where the Israelites had lost faith. Exodus 17, 3-7. Seven. The people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt just to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? That's panic. That's total panic. That's lost, that's lost faith right there. Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do? These guys are about to stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand a staff which you will stri- strike the Nile and go... Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord. So again, another another allusion in this song to when God provided. So back to our question about being obedient, um, to feel a certain way, to worship a certain way when we're not feeling it. The first, the first clue there is to remember back when you were, right? Remember back when God came through. Remember that emotion of that moment, right? The thankfulness, the gratitude. You know, for me personally, that's, that's something that is very convicting because there's so many times in my life where I can think back and, and look at that and uh, where God provided. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think... I struggle in the Old Testament. It's like the same stories over and over. Even Paul, right? Paul keeps in the New Testament, he keeps talking about the road to Damascus over and over and over, right? Well, there's a reason why, right? Because that was the seminal point in his life. And it's the same thing for the, for the Israelites. The people that are seeing this weren't even alive when all that stuff happened, right? I think about us at the Ridge. You know, a lot of you guys weren't here 10 or 11 years ago, but I was, I was. And you, you think the Israelites were messed up you know they got nothing on us, <laughs> nothing. We had about 200 people and about four and a half million dollars of debt, and you know we don't have any anybody that can deal with that kind of money, right? We were we were uh, desperate, right? And a lot of it was our own doing. Uh, you guys weren't there, but I was, and I you know it's it's one of those things where you look back and say God. In some ways we were disobedient. in Some ways we lost sight of the mark. In some ways we put our hope in things that weren't of you, and we got in a pickle, big one, and you came through for us. You came through for us. I mean, it's in ways that we didn't even know how to pray, just like the Bible says. we like, Okay, God, do we, do we pray that, uh, I don't know, that, that we strike oil on the land? I don't know. What, what do we pray for? And God came through for us and delivered us. He delivered us from bond, the bondage of debt um, in an amazing way that we couldn't have predicted. So... If you're not feeling it, think back to when you were. That's, that's one of the clues. It's certainly convicting for me. So now God turns from reminding us of when he came through, reminding the Israelites. Now he, he changes gears to admonishing in verse 8. Hear o, my, hear, o my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel, if you would just listen to me. Let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my way. So look at verses 8 to 13 there in your Bible. There's two exclamation points. You see them? Two different exclamations. That's, is God yelling? Is he pleading? I, I mean, this is the God of the universe. He's, he's exercised. What, he's saying the same thing in both instances. What, what's he saying? When, 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 he, when you see those exclamation points, what's God saying? Would you only just listen, right? All right, so uh, if I had a nickel for every time my dad or mom told me that, man, we, the $4.5 four million of debt would have been no problem. Uh, at our house, I have to say, that may be the most spoken phrase. Just listen. And it's not, I don't think it's yelling. I think it's pleading. I mean, I see my wife, just listen, please put on sunscreen, you know, or whatever it is. Just, just, I remember, I don't remember how old uh, my oldest son was, but it was like, there was a period of taking off shoes and running on the floor, the, the, you know, the tile floor, the laminate floor in socks. Please don't run in socks. That's something bad's going to happen. Don't run in socks, put your shoes on or take your socks off or whatever. Just don't run in socks. And eventually one day, wha pow, bam, running in socks. And I, and it was a, it was like a baseball on his head. I've never seen anything like it. It hit the, and it scared. We talk about panic, by the way, if that ever happens to you or one of your kids and you get hit, you, you, you take a shot to the head, it can balloon up. It's not always, doesn't mean they're going to die. Don't take, don't take medical advice from me. I'm not a doctor, but it doesn't mean they're going to die. I found that out later. What you want to look for is if they're, you know, if they get sleepy or something like that. That's bad. So that's what the doctor told me. So, but I, but I panicked and uh, no one could tell me to calm down at, at that moment. It was scary. Right? But just listen. We can all identify with that. Just listen. And what are you really saying when you say just listen? Listen. And, and, and if you do what I say here, man, you, your, your life will be so much better. Right? By, just don't spend all your money on, the, on, that, on that. Save a little bit of it for this. It's like sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Right? Same thing here. Here all my people if you would just listen to me. So... What's God saying? Let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God, right? I think it's interesting. Sometimes in the Old Testament, we think of God being real harsh and real angry and jealous. And in the New Testament, God is love. Well, the words of Jesus here are even stronger, right? No other God. What does Jesus say in Luke 14, 26, right? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must hate his own father and mother and brother and sister, right? And wife and children. That's harsh, right? It's even more. Jesus says it even more harshly. It's like, don't put anything between you and me. That's what God's saying. Verse ten. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I want you to star that one or mark it. We're going to come back to that. That's part three. So in verse twelve, something scary's happened. God gave them over to the stubbornness of a heart to walk in their own devices. So that immediately makes you think of Romans chapter one, right? I often think that the worst thing God can do is that, right? I mean, we know Jesus told Peter, hey, man, if I backed off and let Satan at you, he would sift you like wheat. But I'm, I'm standing between you. I'm protecting you, right? So we know that's, that's one possibility. Or God can, the world can be a distraction, the temptation. But I think for us as Christians, it's hard, it's hard to, push back against the world on this question because the world says if you like movies you like entertainment you listen to tv just coworkers, friends the world says hey man it's the triumph of the human heart man it, the answer is inside you right it, our our problem is the, the corrupt world but but we're really good and the answer is inside the bible says just the opposite and i know that here but it's hard man when you're barraged with it day after day the bible says just the opposite right we know uh Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? Yes, we're creating in God's image, but the problem is sin, and sin's in the heart. The solution is is God. The solution's outside. The solution's not an internal solution, it's the outside one. And I feel like, man, that's tough. That's a tough thing to, to go against because that's of all the things we believe, that one may be the most diametrically opposed to what the world teaches. All right, so let's go back and see what uh, would happen if God's people would just listen and obey. Verse 13, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would, be, would be pretend obedience to him, and their time of punishment would be forever. But I would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Okay, so, subduing our enemies, right? Again, this isn't an Old Testament idea. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can stand against us? We sing that song, right? If God is for us, who can stand against us? If we would listen and obey, right? The, the things pushing back against us, um, God would handle them. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him. Now, this is a verse I, I, I wondered about, and I struggled with, and I asked some of our guys in our, our discipleship group to kind of give me their thoughts on it. And I looked it up. I wasn't sure what this means, but I'm pretty sure what it's saying is, if if Israel would have obeyed and listened and done what God said, even their enemies would have just out of fear pretended to be obedient to God. Is what He's saying there. In other words. Again, in the New Testament, we say, Jesus says, or, uh, in Romans fourteen eleven, Paul writes about Jesus that he's coming back. And when he does, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's not just Christians. That's people. That's, that's everybody. Right? Whether you, whether you trust in God or believe in God or not, God, when God's coming, he's going to be so present that everyone's going to bow down and worship him. Just, the enemies of God are going to pretend obedience just out of fear. And that's a pretty heavy thought there. And then finally, the reward. I would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. You remember the land of Canaan? The land, what was it called? The land flowing with milk and honey, right? And the honey, there wasn't a lot of trees. The honey was in the clefts of the rock, in the, in the, in the cracks, right? And that's where the bees would build their hive. So I, I was curious. I looked this up. There wasn't really anything like sugar at that time they now they, they you could cut off a piece of sugar cane and chew on it but it wasn't like the sugar we have right it wasn't like the the, the uh, hostess cupcakes i like to eat or uh any of the, that good stuff or the sugar in the drinks i like to drink it wasn't anything like that and this was thousands of years before chocolate came along that was the mayans in 1500s right so think about that think about living in a world for a minute I don't want to panic you. But think about living in a world with no sugar, no processed sugar, no chocolate, none of that, right? Think about it. That's a scary thing. And then think about going to a land flowing with honey then, right? I mean, honey's good, but if that, you didn't have that other stuff, man, stay out of my way. Don't get between me and honey, right? All right, so God wants to meet our, meet our needs, right? God wants us to listen and obey, and if we do, he's telling us he'll provide us with the finest the wheat and the honey telling the Israelites what would have happened some people call this passage the woulda coulda shoulda because did the Israelites really ever do this I mean they did it there's periods of time where they did right but ultimately right this never really lasted right Um, because we know what happened eventually they were overrun by their enemies um, because they wouldn't stay consistent in listening and obeying to God so let's go back this is our last thing. Let's go back to verse 10. This is the one that's got me stirred up. Look at verse 10 at the very end. All right? I want you to pic- picture a nest, right? A little bird's nest with little baby birds in it. And they're unable to feed themselves. They're waiting for the mother to come back with the cricket or the grasshopper or whatever, the worm, whatever they got, right? What, when the mother gets back, the mother bird gets back to the nest, does she have to, okay, now, eat your... Eat your food, open up your mouth, pry it open, stick the food in, right? Is that what it looks like? No, no, right? Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. If we look at this slot, next slide, there it is, right? That's what it looks like, right? That's what God is saying we should look like, right? Instead of, now, instead of thinking of a mother bird who has like one cricket and, you know, the biggest, strongest one gets it and the other ones are still, right? Think about... A human parent, right? The, the Bible talks about this. Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Right? Think about, think about the God of the universe. Right? Is that a problem for Him, to fill all the beaks? It's not a problem at all. So, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. How do we come to God with that kind of attitude that's what's the most convicting for me that's not me I, I there's moments where I'm I'm desperate and I pray that way but my goal most of the time I'll confess is not that my goal is to be set so I don't have that kind of desperation and need right I mean that's why I go to the Dave Ramsey class partially I mean I'm not saying Dave Ramsey class is bad please go by the way we got another one coming up sign up but the, but but I'm trying to give you, I'm trying to get it all squared away so I got the college fund and I got we're okay on the house and uh, I can give give to the church and you know all that but I'm trying to get all that squared away so I'm not ever desperate, right? So how do we do that? Well, I'm going to give you four things here. Four ways we can come to God with mouth wide open. And the first one is maybe the toughest for me, and it's cultivate a sense of need. Cultivate a sense of need. If we have no sense of need, how can we pray? We, we, we desire so much to not be in need. I mean, that's what I'm like. When I'm in need, I'm praying to God provides so all, then I won't be in need, right? God's wanting us to cultivate a sense of need, a sense of desperation, right? And if you don't have it, think about a time when you did, when God provided, all right? So Charles Spurgeon has a great quote on this one. Open your mouth wide, man. Do not play at praying. Nobody is safe between sleeping and walking, and nobody wins rich blessings by being lukewarm. I have heard mothers say of a child that he cried all over, and that is the right way to pray. Let your whole man wrestle with the Most High. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. Deep necessity and urgent desire are two great openers of the mouth in prayer. So think about that. Not just waiting for it to happen, but actually cultivating a sense of need. God is challenging us here. This is a challenge from God. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Did the Israelites think that it was a problem for God to drive out their enemies or meet their physical needs? I mean, remember what he did with the cloud? Remember what he did with the Red Sea? I mean, this isn't a problem for God. I was thinking about Dan and his new, I would say, hobby. But Dan didn't really have a hobby because he learns everything exhaustively, I think. But this, looking at the stars, Right. I mean, do you think the God that created that, I, I think it's hundreds of billions or trillions or whatever, the, the, it's really going to be a problem for, for what I'm about to ask for, for him to do it? I mean, would I be that presumptuous to think, well, God, I know this, this is a big one, you know? Charles Spurgeon says, Our cup is small, and we blame the fountain. Our cup is small, and we blame the fountain. So I go to God with my little cup and ask him to fill it up, and it's like, okay, that's all you got? And it's like... It's all you brought, man, right? Think of the story of the widow in Elisha, right? She was in, she was in trouble. Her husband died. They were in debt. They were in big trouble, right? Kind of like the Ridge was 10, 11 years ago. And Elijah said, hey, go to all your neighbors. Get as many vessels as you can and see what God does to fill it. She had one jar of oil left. That was it. She, was, that, she would have been toast. She would have been sold into slavery. And he said, go to your neighbors, get some jars. I mean, you can't. She sent her sons out. They got jars. God filled them all up. You see, I got more oil. God's got more to give. Well, that's all the jars we got. All right? So number two. Number one, cultivate a sense of need. Number two, pray to scale. If you're a believer, God has already forgiven your sins, given you a heart transplant, placed the spirit within you, and given you eternal life. Do you think anything else is a big deal after that? Pray to scale. If we pray to scale, what would we ask God for? Right? Jesus said, what's easier, for me to heal this guy or for me to forgive his sins? Right? I mean, we're visceral, we're material, we're stuck in this world, and it's like, well, I, I want the need met. But it's exponentially greater what Jesus did forgiving sins, paying the sacrifice for sins, than meeting some physical need, even healing the guy, which he did, right? It's not even close. The disciples, if they had bigger nets, they would have caught more fish, right? Drop the net over here, and the net started busting. Buy bigger nets, like the disciples. Bring, bring bigger vessels, like the widow. Borrow, beg, steal, whatever you need to do. Get some bit more pots. God will fill them, right? Loaves and the fish, right? There is a ton left over, right? Now pray to scale. God's, think about the scale of God, the God of the universe, the God who moving a mountain is a word or a thought. No problem. Number three, ask God with a focus on the spiritual versus the temporal. It's okay to for, ask for physical things we need. Jesus in the model prayer says, ask for it. Give us this day our daily bread. Pray for that. That's okay. Give us this day our daily bread, right? Not asking to get rich, but ask. it's okay, right? But but when we pray and we pray for spiritual things, there's no limit. You think about that. There's no limit to what we can pray for. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Just like the birds, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will, they will be satisfied, right? When we pray for spiritual things, right, there's no limit. I'll confess again here. I, God, I really just want enough people to show up to life group today for it not to be awkward. That's really all. I, or, I God, I, I got this men's Bible study, and can you just please have one person there? Because it's really kind of starting to bum me out right now. It's like, so the way I pray, think about this. If you grew up in church like me, it's like, okay, you pray, and God can say yes, God can say no, or God can say not yet, right? Did You guys kind of all taught that, right? It's like we're kind of preparing people just to not have their prayers answered, right? Just, just in case, because we don't want you to be let down. Right God can say yes, and that's true. that's true. God, that, that, that's uh, true to some degree. but why not pray big, right? Next week, Steve Marshall from France is going to be preaching. You listen to missionaries, man, they got this down. You remember when Steve was here last time? He's like, we have, yeah, we have 10,000 in the bank. we need." uh, whatever, 250,000 do this one church, but I really like to do two. So that's another 250. So that's what I'm praying. I'm like, what, what did you just say that? None of that makes any sense. You'd have to have this many people and that kind of thing. And where's that going to come from? He's like, you're a missionary. That's the way you live. You pray. That's how you pray. Right. I, when I met with Trey, uh, he said, man, we're, we're, we're doing this new mission deal. It's self-funded. Um, we want to go back in six months to Serbia, Trey Israel. And he said, so here's what we need. We need X number of dollars. And I was like, whoa, you need how much? I mean, if you have met with 100 people and they all donated 100 bucks a month. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but we want, we're going to go back in six months. And we have to have 95% of that met before we go back. And I was like, I mean, he, he wasn't worried at all. I was. When he talked to me, I was like, man, you, I was like, good luck with all that, my friend. Uh, what, can I give you an email list or something? I don't know where to start. Missionaries do this all the time, Right. All right, number four. So number one, cultivate a sense of need. Number two, pray to scale. Think about the scale of God. Think about what he's already done. Think about the gifts he's already given us. Pray to scale. Ask along those lines. Ask big. Number three, ask with a focus on the spiritual versus the temporal, right? Open your mouth. God, fill my mouth with praise. Fill my mouth with emotion. Fill my mouth with this, this kind of praise. Ask for that. Don't be afraid. Number four. Use what God has given you, and he will give you more. You remember the parable of the talents? This is a verse I never understood. Or When I was a kid, I was like, this is one of the verses, I think, even through my adult life. The Bible says at the end of that, you know, he, ha- he doesn't have very much. He has very little. Even that will be taken away. He who has a lot, I'll give him more. I never understood that. That seems just like, that's just being mean. That's not like just picking on the guy, the kid that doesn't have very much. and get, The guy that's already loaded, giving him more. The reason why is because the gifts were being used, right? I'm praying God to be, I want, I want God to give me this gift of whatever it is, teaching or whatever. Well, am I teaching anybody? Am I, am I cultivating that gift? I want God to, I, want God, I mean, I'd really love to have some guys to, to come alongside me and to, to me to come alongside and to be, have a really great relationship with them so we can disciple each other. And what am I doing about it? And God, you know, we have to, um, and sometimes it's cleaning house, right? Sometimes we have to clean out the garbage for God to fill it, right? We have, all, we have a bunch of vessels. We, we borrowed them. We got tons of them, but they're all full of stuff. And they're all full of junk. We got we to empty them out. So those are the four things. Ask big. And I have two questions, and these are both. I don't have answers, so you just have to think about this or not. But uh, One is... When God says no, right? Maybe God says no or later in our little three things we learn. Is it possible that he's saying no because we're asking for something too small? Right? Because I was always told, hey, you can't ask, pray in all circumstances, you can't ask God for something for too small. That's kind of what I always thought. But I think here, you at least have to consider that. Is, Is what I'm asking for too small? Is it not worthy of God? Am I asking for something that's so... You know, just, I just want one person to, to show up today or whatever. It's like, am I asking for something too small? God, changed the city. You know, Gary, Jerry does that. Jerry will be up here and he'll say, man, I'm, God's working in the colony. And, I, and he's going to change the colony. I'm like, well, man, that's great. But you got 20 people in your group. Is, I mean, I'm, that's awesome. But, you know, I confess a lot of times I don't pray this way. That's big. See if you can overexpect God. Is that possible? Is it possible for us to ask so big that we've overexpected, that we're too eager? I don't think so, but I don't know. Try it, let's see. But you've got to ask, right? All right, there you go. So, if you're not a believer, start by asking God to come into your heart. Start by asking for forgiveness, right? That's the biggest thing of all, right? And when he says he'll give us the honey and he'll give us the best bread, right? He already has, right? That's the bread of life that he's given us, which segues nicely into the Lord's Supper, which we'll do here in just a minute. I'll let John come up and get started. Uh, as believers, this is something that we do every week, and it, and it can go one of two ways. It can be rote or trite, or it can be form over substance, or it can be an opportunity for us to really think back. To, man, God sent his son to die on the cross for me. He gave me a heart transplant. He put the Holy Spirit in me. This is the same God that created the trillions of stars. Did all that for me. So when we take the Lord's Supper, that's where we go, right? We examine our hearts and make sure that that's what we're meditating on. Not because we want great things because we serve a great God. We can ask big things. We'll let the guys come up and get us started on the Lord's Supper as John sings.